All right, Mayor, so I'll do a, a quick agenda review for you, and then we'll jump right into it. Um, uh, Dr. Susan Perry is going to give you a, uh, an update on St. Paul's. Uh, a lot been going on the last uh, 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 three or four weeks in particular, but a lot has happened since your last briefing, which was uh, first part of June, so I just want to have you give you a sense of where we are up there. Uh, Chief Boone and Karen parker Chester are going to give you a mid-year report on the, um, uh, the, their numbers and their community outreach, which is all really positive. We've got a, um, a Charles request, a consultant coming in in August uh, to talk about um, uh, animal care and um, wanted Barbara Hayes to have a chance to, to frame up that, that conversation or prepare you all for that conversation a little bit as also a, a reaction to uh, the audit that uh, John Sanderlin did. So we'll give you a little bit of information on that as you go into uh, your recess. Um, uh, it is hurricane season, so Jim Reddick's going to jump up and uh, just remind you of a few things, and then uh, Isan Mowak is going to talk about that Ms. Um, uh, uh, McClellan had seen a presentation on the Community Hospitality Partnership, which is really starting to, to shape up and really interesting and give you just a, a quick preview of where all that uh, is, is standing. Uh, one of the things I hope you'll notice, and I really hope Mr. Schmigel will notice this, is um, you will not see a presentation with more than 10 slides on it. Uh, most are less than 10, and so you remember now that um, we're giving you a lot of pre-work, you know, so, so the pre some of the PowerPoints you all received before the weekend are a lot longer, uh, but they, to give you the full story, but the idea is to uh, keep these briefings pretty tight and give you all a chance um, based on what you read over the weekend and, and quickly what you hear uh, to have some conversation there. So um, uh, we heard you, and uh, we're responding to that. So uh, with that, I'd ask Dr. Perry to step up and uh, give you an update on where things stand relative to St. Paul's. Well, thank you and good evening, Mayor, members of the council. Um, really pleased to be before you today to, um, again, as the manager said, up update you on all that's happened in the month uh, since um, I last briefed you. Um, as you know, the city and NRHA are jointly um, applying for a HUD Choice Neighborhood Initiative grant. And so that's the ability to um, compete for $30,000 um, for phase one of the St. Paul's Transformation Plan. And that would actually go for 30 million this time. 30 million. 30,000 is not enough. That's right. <laughs> 30 million. Um, um, but that really gives us the ability to address uh, Tidewater Gardens first, which is the neighborhood most impacted by flooding. And so today, I just want to give you an update on the activities that have occurred over the last month, including this um, design charrette um, that we uh, held with the community last week, the selection of um, a housing lead or the housing um, interviews for the housing lead that we conducted two weeks ago, and then the procurement process for People First. Um, but I do want to note that um, this design charrette is um, to provide the plan that will move forward for the St. Paul's area, regardless of whether or not we receive the CNI grant. Um, this will be the, the plan that we move forward with for phase one. And so um, the charrette and, of course, just our everyday work really uh, begins with our guiding principles. So these are the guiding principles that you um, adopted in the resolution uh, uh, in January. And so we asked the architectural team working on the design charrette to proceed with the plan for the CNI application and the larger redevelopment effort that really adheres to these principles. And so um, I won't read them to you, but again, most importantly, that all our decisions will be family-focused and we'll prioritize the housing choices of families, that will collaborate to produce the People First programs and services, and that will always be transparent um, and, and solicit feedback from uh, 
the community. And so to reflect that uh, continuous input and transparency um, in those guiding principles, this design process really ensured that we included all the stakeholders, especially the community, in creating this vision for the future redevelopment. And we had really good participation um, from residents, and they really <coughs> assisted the architectural firm in identifying and reflecting those uh, community priorities in the, dra in the draft plan. And so this um, charrette took place last week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. It was held at the St. Mary's uh, Basilica in Tidewater Gardens. And so in addition to those public meetings that we held in the <coughs> evening, um, the design team met with other stakeholder groups. And so you see here, they met with the uh, St. Paul's Advisory Committee, residents, um, also the St. Paul's Development Coalition, uh, the various city departments, transportation, stormwater, resilience, um, our first responders, police and fire. Um, they had an opportunity to talk with Norfolk Public Schools, Tidewater Community College, um, United Ways, United for Children program, who's doing a lot of work in the St. Paul's area now, um, and then also the Greater Norfolk Corporation. <clears throat> so the kickoff meeting was held on Monday night, and that was really used to gather feedback um, from residents on key issues that they had expressed at the community meeting um, last month. And so the architects really, um, they set up for three days there at St. Mary's. They had a, an on-site design studio um, that residents were invited to come in, uh, see them doing the work, ask questions, provide feedback on the spot, um, really to continue this transparent planning process. Um, over the course of the two days, residents attended both these drop-in sessions as well as the community meetings in the evening. And just uh, really a big shout-out to St. Mary's and Father Kern. Father Kern is on our St. Paul's Advisory Committee, but they really opened up the church, uh, took care of all our needs over, the last, over those three days. Um, their staff was just uh, really great to us, and so we really appreciated that partnership. And so based on those community and stakeholder meetings over those three days, the architects highlighted uh, many of the uh, issues that we've heard from previous community meetings um, that you'll see here. Of course, flooding was the number one concern noted about, um, by residents, but they also talked about things like um, eyes on the street to create uh, uh, more safety in the neighborhood. They were really adamant about this connection to downtown and the rest of the city. Um, of course, we've heard, you know, mixed uh, income communities that really include a variety of housing types for all different types of families and, and, and family units. Um, of course, uh, needs for educational experiences and job training. And then lastly, we really heard this idea of creating a sense of community and preserving the cultural identity of the area. And so um, this is actually a, a recommendation by a member of the St. Paul's Advisory Committee. Um, really good feedback for us and, and that we're uh, looking to include in the final plan. And so this next slide you'll see here, um, this is the, the draft plan that was presented on Wednesday night um, by the design team to the community. Um, again, this is a draft plan. It doesn't uh, complete, completely address all of the issues, but it begins to incorporate these design principles um, that they heard during the charrette. So those connections to the rest of the city, you begin to see the, the streets, uh, street connections north, south, east, and west. Um, one of the things that's been a really big desire for us is this connection down to Harper Park. This plan doesn't quite get us there, so there's still some work to do on that, on that end. Um, the deconcentration of poverty to have those mixed incomes, um, uh, mixed income housing uh, by the block level. Um, this idea of mixed uses, and so really creating employment opportunities um, that allow 
uh, residents access to jobs and new businesses within their community. Having these public facilities like schools and recreation centers that anchor, um, anchor the community and then really uh, effectively managing our stormwater. And so what you'll see here um, is a public works stormwater is in the process of doing a stormwater master plan. Until that is completely finished, we will not know whether or not this is enough, uh, too much or too little green space or blue space, um, or if it's properly placed. But what you'll see here is that um, it's enough to uh, address our stormwater needs and really uh, provide an amenity to the community by activating that public space. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, um, I think at our last briefing with you, I shared that the Housing Authority uh, uh, released a request for proposals for a housing lead. And so this is the lead housing developer that's, that we're required to have on board for the Choice Neighborhood um, Implementation Grant. And so we received um, eight proposals to that RFP and a selection committee that included city departments that you'll see here as well as uh, various divisions of NRJ as well as a member of the St. Paul's Advisory Committee, um, evaluated those eight proposals and uh, made a recommendation for the four finalists to come in um, and interview uh, with that team. Uh, those four are listed here, Penrose out of Pennsylvania, Integral out of Atlanta, uh, McCormick, Barron, and Salazar out of St. Louis, and Brinshore out of Illinois. Um, and so that final selection is still pending as uh, NRHA finalizes the procurement process, but we wanted you to see um, who those four finalists are. We also wanted you to note that they were, those proposals were evaluated over several categories. And so um, the first three here, capacity, experience, and um, the ability to manage the development process of this uh, project of this scale were sort of just the, the three big components just to to, to get the firms in the door, if you will. And so Ms. Ms. Graves was um, uh, very eloquent in saying to our St. Paul's Advisory Committee that uh, we want to ensure that uh, whoever is selected um, isn't practicing on Norfolk, right? They really have the ability to do this, and they've done it well um, in other parts of the, of the country. But also really important uh, to the selection committee was um, minority and women-owned business participation, the ability to um, finance a project of this scale, and then a really a successful track record of having quality property management. Then that last one there is, um, was also really important to us, which was we heard a lot from the community that they want to be part of the redevelopment. So having a successful track record of engaging residents and providing those community services, having a firm that understands that, that we can couple with our per People First program we think will really provide um, successful outcomes for families. And then on the People First side, um, it, as you know, we released a request for information at the end of June. Um, again, this was just a request for information for the best practices and the innovative solutions that we could use to assist families in St. Paul's. Um, but we did receive 14 responses um, to that request for information. And just because, because it was a request for information, just because somebody didn't respond to the RFI does not mean that they can't later respond to the, to the request for proposals. Um, and, and our People First work group have reviewed all of those um, and really began to, to pick out the best things that we liked from them. Um, and out of that, we, we really wanted to come up with what are the values and the key components and the purpose of what uh, People First was trying to accomplish. And so, of course, you can see here that it was really important to us that 
um, this coordinating agency have a commitment to, to quality, um, but also that they were trust, trustworthy, respectful of, of, of residents in the community, um, that they were inclusive, not just of residents, but of um, churches and schools and local service providers. And then they really felt um, that it was important that they have a local knowledge. So even if they weren't a local organization, that they were partnering or that they spent time in the community to really understand uh, Norfolk. Um, and the key components uh, um, are really around, and, and this first one maybe is, is different from what we've said in the past, but um, they really felt like it was important to know that the firm had um, a really good track record in recruitment and assessment. So we've talked about that assessment, but really somebody who's going to get out in the community, really um, knock on doors, get residents um, uh, aware of the services that would be provided, but also um, get them engaged in those in, in that People First program. Um, and if somebody in, in initially refused those services, that they would have the ability to come back later um, and and get those people first services. So those were sort of the, the three components um, and the values that we want to make sure are included in that RFP. Our work group meets on Monday to finalize the RFP and we look to have that released in, in August. And we'll do the interviews and the, uh, the reviews of those proposals at that time. Um, and so again, we are working very diligently to get us to that September 17th deadline for the grant application. So while a lot has happened over the next six, um, the last month, we're going to continue over the next 60 days at that same pace. Um, as I mentioned before, NRHA will finalize the procurement process uh, to bring on the housing lead. We'll get that people first uh, request for proposals out in August, uh, evaluate the proposals, and conduct the interviews in the fall. Um, but you'll see this, this work group strategy sessions. Um, so when I said that the plan wasn't finalized, that was revealed on Wednesday, um, what we really know that we've heard from residents of what they want to know is what are the number and type of each replacement housing, where are they going to go, what do they look like, um, what's the start and end dates for each of the phases. We will have all of that information in August when the final plan is put together. Um, and so NRHA and our consultants are working very diligently on that information. We'll hold that meeting with the community in August as well, um, where we'll, we will, uh, NRHA will literally be able to point, you know, to where the first phase will be and begin talking with residents about what that time frame looks like for them. We'll also be working on the other sections of the people, for, um, excuse me, of the Choice Neighborhood Initiative grant around people and neighborhoods. Um, so uh, again, that's a lot of information, but we feel like by, the, uh, by September we'll have a good plan in place um, for the overall St. Paul's transformation effort, regardless of whether or not we receive uh, the CNI, but we hope to, to get a nice grant of $30 million um, <laughs> in September. Happy to answer any questions. All right, Ms. McClellan, first. Questions that um, hearing folks' uh, social media in relation to the outreach that you all did and wanting to know more and obviously they still didn't know all the big details. I had to explain what People's First, People First was and how we were putting money towards it. Do we have a communication plan or website? And I apologize because maybe I should know it. I said, where, where can I send people to learn more? That's right. So we do have a website. It's uh, www.stpaulsdistrict.org. And there's also a Facebook page. Um, if you search St. Paul's area, you'll find it. Grace, you got something to share? No, 
I'm, I'm just, um, the staff has worked really hard, um, very quickly, which sets a very high bar for future projects to know that you all can work this quickly and get things done so efficiently. Um, we should never have things dragging for months and months um, because you guys have, uh, you all have really worked very hard um, to, especially with um, the short period of time that you've had with the CNI. Um, we, we started out these meetings at uh, the Attic Theater and um, quite frankly thought better of having them over at St. Mary's so that because the um, Tidewater Gardens area, the first area to go, thought better of having the meetings right at St. Mary's, and they are—they really have been wonderful in, in helping. Um, but that way, um, they each resident has the opportunity on a monthly basis to be able to come into the meeting, see what's happening, and not have to depend on what she said and he said and, and getting information wrong, and they can participate. So um, I definitely want to thank the staff for their hard work, and um, we still have a lot of, you know, we have a lot of work to do. We have an incredible amount of work to do, but um, Mr. Riddick and I have had some conversations about, you know, how this is going to play out and, and what we would like to see, and, um, you know, I, I still go with the two trains. Don Masaccio, in our first meeting, he gave an illustration of two trains, and we did. We had the federal government money train that's driving development, but then we have the people side of it. And they all have to work and run kind of simultaneously to make sure that um, when they get to their destination, each one has had a successful trip. And so um, our job is to make, I think the CNI piece will kind of take care of itself a little bit, but the people side of it is really, I think, where our responsibility comes in is to making sure that the residents are well taken care of. So thank you. And thank you for setting such a high bar. <laughs> okay, thank you. Right, Susan, yeah. thank you. Uh, uh, our next uh, presentation is going to be with uh, Chief Boone, and, and obviously the uh, police uh, lip sync challenge has gotten all the attention <laughs> of, of late, as it should have. Um, but the work that uh, Chief Boone and his team have been doing in terms of just the core services has really been outstanding, and the community engagement has been outstanding. I want to give him a chance to, to share that along with um, uh, Karen Parker Chesson. Okay. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Council, Mr. Smith. Um, We'll be highlighting our mid-year review. I am reminded of my college football coach, the legendary Irk Russell, after we won our first national championship. He said, we're good, but we're not great. And subsequently, we won five national championships thereafter. And I mention all that because on the heels of last year, 32-year uh, low with respect to prime, we're moving the needle, but we're not great. There's some work that we can do to improve. Um, this is the first time in this organization's history that we had back-to-back -back double digits reductions with respect to crime, violent crime. Now, I'm only as good as the women and men that work for me, and I certainly applaud them for a job well done. They work extremely hard. I also want to highlight my state and local and federal friends um, who've helped me, the ATF and the, uh, the others. Um, 
Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't recognize City Council and the community. Thank you for your support. Now, our body of methods continues to be hot bodies, individuals that have a history for creating havoc in communities in hot areas, the areas in which they frequent. And all that is based on our data. So we're going to be covering 2008 mid-year crime statistics, the prior year trends, violent crime, property crime, narcotic trends, and our community relations manager, Karen Parker-Chesson, will be highlighting some of our national highlights. So here's our mid-year review. We have 18% decrease in violent crime. Last year it was 19%. We have 11% decrease in property crime. Last year it was about 13% and a total decrease in total crime at 12%. So let's look at homicide. We're up 5%, and I'll dive into that a bit later to explain that. A rape, we're down 6%, but although we're down, we've noticed a trend in which um, our rapes are being reported with respect to an influence of alcohol. And we partner with the YWCA, and we're going to be creating a sexual awareness program in which we're going to be training ABC staff members to recognize some of the uh, signs that con could contribute to rape and sexual assault. Uh, you look at robbery and aggravated assault, robbery is down 22%, aggravated assault is down 19%. That is huge because of the human carnage those two categories could create. So we have a total reduction of violent crime of 18%. Looking at property crime, burglary is down by 47%. That is huge as well. Larceny, a reduction of 8%. And stolen autos, we're up 19%. Early on in the winter, people were leaving their vehicles running. They would go inside 7-Eleven or whatever and leave their cars running, and they would come out, and the cars are gone. So we uh, did a full court press with respect to social media, trying to educate folks, and that number is starting to trend back in the right direction. So our total property crime, we're down by 11%, and total crime, 12%. So, when we look at 2016, 2017, 2018, from the end of 2016, we have reduced total violent crime by 31% for the mid-year comparisons. The same can be said regarding total property crime. We have reduced that category as well by 23% and total crime by 24%. Let's talk about homicides. Now, in 2016, we had 29 homicides. A lot of that was contributed to two neighborhoods. They were in a conflict, and we had a lot of street killings, unfortunately. In 2017, we realized that there was an issue between these two communities, 
and we strategically placed resources where they needed to be to kind of avert that. This year, uh, we have 20 homicides, and it's, it's a bit different. It's not so much street neighborhood issues, um, which I will highlight on the next slide. So you look at 2016, we had residential homicides. Let me highlight that. Residential homicides generally are homicides that occur inside a residence, and the parties uh, know each other. It could be domestic or a parent killing a child, or it could be drug-related. So in 2016, we had eight of those. Street homicides, in 2016, we had 21. And a lot of that can be attribute to those neighborhood issues that we talked about or that I talked about earlier. Um, we had some drive-by shootings, we had some gang activity, and we had some drug activity as well. So again, in 2017, the yellow column, we um, had six residential homicides. Uh, recognizing that we had some issues in 2016, we put resources where they needed to be to affect the street homicides, as you can see, they went down to 13. And the same process can be said for this year. The only difference is a lot of our homicides, half of them this year, have occurred inside a residence. We've had two or three where a parent had killed their child. We have children playing with guns, and we have some drug activity as well. So in those areas where we know we're going to have street homicide, we have re reduced that significantly. Right now, we're looking at 10 street homicides. So when it comes to a true barometer where your crime is going, you always want to look at gun activity. So you look at persons shot, 2016. We had 135 people shot. Again, putting resources where they need to be, we started to see a decrease in 2017, we had 83 people shot. And right now, we're looking at 65 for this year, for a reduction of 52% over the last three years at mid-year. Shooting-related incidents, no person shot. That could be somebody shooting into a building or a car. Um, you can see the reduction there. I don't care what city it is, whether it's Los Angeles, Detroit, this is what you want to see. If it's going the other way, regardless of what the data says, you got problems. Our mid-year narcotics crime report, we focused on the areas in which we got the most calls for service. Um, you can see in 2017, the south side, we had 31 calls for service, and there we reduced that to 12, um, and those trends are continuing because, again, we're putting resources where resources need to be. I know we had folks that uh, had complained about the south side, particularly Madison Street, and we've greatly impacted that, and that they've carried on. Our overdoses are problematic, and it's not just problematic here in Norfolk. It's all over the country, to be quite frank with you. Uh, and we have two full-time investigators that investigate those incidents exclusively. 
and our non-fatals, um, we are up in that aspect as well. And it's not just fentanyl and opioids, it's all cocaine, heroin, things of that nature. But before I move away from this, I, I want to highlight one thing uh, regarding guns. When I became chief of police, I, I saw a photograph of our youth in the Virginian pilot with the young men, they had a gun in every hand. And that bothered me. And as a result, I commissioned a gun study. And what that gun study revealed was very alarming. All of the guns were bought legally. And within short order, 88% of those guns were in the hands of someone that did not buy the weapon. To include our youth. Now, I don't have a battle or fight regarding gun control. That's not my concern. My concern is our youth, our children, that we recover these weapons from. Now, in the past, this department, we've never investigated the gun. The gun was just something that came along with the robbery or the murder. We just never investigated. That's going to stop. We are going to investigate the guns because I'm not waiting on legislation. That's not the answer. But we'll, But what the answer is, if I knock on your door and you know you purchased a weapon, you don't have that weapon, and somebody else has it, I'm trying to change behavior. That's all I'm trying to do. And I think we're doing just that. Any questions? If the weapon is missing, if you if I buy it and then it goes missing, am I required by law to notify? The, so at least you know it's missing, other than just to protect my own self from something that might happen, you know, if the gun got in the, somebody else's hands. There are no laws that mandate that you report your gun lost, stolen, sold, whatever. But again, let me highlight, that's not my battle. My battle was how these guns end up in the hands of our youth. Okay? okay. We can't ignore that, folks. No, I, I agree. I just wanted to know. Yes. Just, I didn't know if there was a requirement. Or so I'm hoping by knocking on the doors of those that originally purchased said weapon, we will change behavior. And I think we are doing that. So when you... Okay, so when you go knock on that door, mm -hmm. I have a law, I have a gun. I don't have a gun, but I have a gun. <laughs> <laughs> For the purposes of this, I have a gun. It's lost or stolen or whatever. And two years down the line, you recover it because it's been used in a homicide. You knock on my door. What does that conversation sound like does it or look, look like, like or yeah, whatever? Sir, did you purchase said weapon two years ago from this location? Because we know who purchased, where it was purchased, and uh, how many times you purchased. Mm -hmm. Okay, now if you reported it stolen or lost, um, that's generally not an issue. Mm -hmm. But if we get the same person that are making copious amount of purchases, because okay. in okay. Virginia there's no limit. Okay. okay. And again, I don't have a dog in this fight, I am just trying to change behavior. Smith. All right, Mr. Manager. Is uh, 
Okay. On a lighter note. <laughs> Karen, yes. Quick question. I'm sorry. You said you had two people who were investigating overdoses? Exclusively. That's all they do. Okay. Do you need more? No. no. I have two that do that exclusively. I have an, an additional two that do it part-time. Okay. So. Okay. All right. So a little bit about Karen. Karen came to us sometime in 2008 as a PIO. She was recognized locally and nationally for her, her radio skills. She was a radio personality. And she came to us as a um, pu uh, public information officer. And subsequently, the former chief and I uh, recognized her talent for creating initiatives. And I got to tell you, we have taken off uh, since we made that transition with her. So she's our community relations manager, and I'll turn it over to Karen Parker Chester. Thank you, Chief, and good evening. So today I'm here to talk about some of our national wins. Norfolk Police Department's community engagement initiatives and outreach have been nationally recognized time and time again, all due to an internal culture and environment that fosters and encourages sworn and non-sworn employees alike, creativity, innovation, originality, and authenticity. Each of us is motivated to develop opportunities for genuine civic engagement that will build mutual respect, equity, and meaningful outcomes. Wins for Norfolk citizens and our officers. It is in this very culture of NPD win synergy that Norfolk Police has mastered authentic community engagement, where a lipstick challenge video <laughs> created in-house with an iPhone and a stabilizer generated over 70 million views worldwide on Norfolk Police Department's Facebook page. And in the last 15 days has been seen on CNN, NBC Nightly News, Access Hollywood, Inside Edition, People Magazine, Good Morning America, and so many more. Placing all eyes on the Norfolk Police Department and the city of Norfolk with unprecedented positive publicity and attention known to date. Norfolk Police has commanded national attention for its authentic community engagement prior to such as the Clergy Patrol, an initiative that serves citizens weekly through faith-based clergy ride-alongs, a partnership for more personal outreach and direct touch to our citizens. We've been featured on the Christian Broadcast Network, CBN 700 Club, TBN, Trinity Broadcast Network, the Law Enforcement Industry's online reader, the Police Executive Research Forum, or PERF Daily. Cops and Curls featured on MPD's Facebook page with over 3 million video views last year, making it our very first video that went viral. America Online, The Today Show, and this year's National Civic Conference in Denver, Colorado. Cops and Curls serves to promote the self-esteem and confidence of young girls from communities of opportunity. An authentic and model engagement named True. That's one of MPD's newest community outreach initiatives <coughs> developed by officers for partnership with area businesses to help NPS high school students' academic workforce development and employment future. 
featured on the law enforcement industry's daily online news source, PERF, or PERF Daily. 5-0 and Fades, an initiative developed for conversations inside Norfolk's barbershops for mutual respect between officers and adult men and teen males. Also highlighted at this year's National Civic Conference in Denver, Colorado, and Perf Daily. And finally, for the touchdown, in the final minute of the fourth quarter, for the win, for the national win, the creator and the conductor of MPD's Win Synergy, a different kind of chief, and Norfolk's top cop, Larry D. Boone, will accept the 2018 Attorney General Eric Holder Leadership Award for Excellence as a law enforcement executive in the line of duty for his direction and guidance of the Norfolk Police Department and authentic community engagement with citizens in the city of Norfolk. That's going to take place July 30th at the 42nd Annual National Association of Black Law Enforcement Executives Training Conference in Hollywood, Florida. And we are winning. And if you choose to be a part of a winning team and engage with us, we would love to have you. Upcoming events are as follows. Just the Facts Community Outreach Summer Tour, Wednesday, July 25th, Norview Community Center, that's 6.30 to 7.30. July 26th, that's Thursday, Huntersville Community Recreation Center, 6.30 to 7.30. National Night Out, Tuesday, August the 7th, Broad Creek Community, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And the second annual 501 Fades Back to School Haircut event at the STEM Academy at Campus Stella. Sunday, September the 2nd, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. We would love to have you. Norfolk Strong, we all belong. Thank you. Manager. All right, all right. Sorry, Mr. Smeagol. I just, I love the publicity that the Lip Sync Challenge has given that. I'm hoping you're seeing an increase in the amount of interest in those who want to be police officers. But the big question I get is, um, they don't want a one-hit wonder, so there's starting to get a request for a second video um, of this. I don't know if you'll hit 70 million again, but uh, if, what I'm hearing from people, and they would like the chief to actually appear in the next one, so, um, in high heels maybe. <laughs> Drop the mic, chief. <laughs> All right. Um, so we, on August 28th, as you all know, McKenna Yarborough is going to come in and talk about ways to improve the save rate at the Norfolk Animal Care Center. And um, uh, Barbara Hayes is going to step up as our bureau manager for the Animal Care Shelter and talk to you a little bit. Remember, John Sandlin came in, did a strategic, did a uh, excuse me, an audit, and one of the things he recommended was a strategic plan. I just want to give you an update on where that is in um, uh, in advance of Mrs. Yarbrough or Ms. Yarbrough's presentation in late August. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm very happy to uh, be here before you today to talk about the Norfolk Animal Care Center, share some information with you, and uh, I'd love to talk about the work we do, but I know the agenda is full, so we can get right to it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Um, so in March um, of this year, the city auditor um, presented you with um, the findings from the audit that they conducted on the uh, Norfolk Animal Care and Adoption Center. And they recommended um, in the audit that the Department of General Services develop a strategic, a strategic plan to analyze internal and external factors that affect our shelter, detail the mission, vision, and goals, and our objectives required to improve our programs and services. Um, we did complete this recommendation from the city auditor with a formal strategic plan, which you received prior to today's council session. And it's also important to remember that the Animal Care Center must ad always adhere to state laws and regulations with respect to our daily operations and legal obligations to the animals in our care. For a more thorough discussion of the legal parameters, um, those are identified on page two of that strategic plan you were given. The Animal Care Center strives to adhere not only to the state requirements, such as proper food, water, space, housing structures, climate control, cleanliness, and veterinary care, but also operate to our industry's best management practices and deliver high-quality care to the animals um, that come our way each year based on the association of the shelter veterinarians' guidelines for standards of care for animal shelters. We operate with the five freedoms, the freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from discomfort, freedom from pain, injury, or disease, freedom to express normal behaviors, and freedom from fear or distress. The center staff and volunteers are wholly committed to ensuring these freedoms to every animal we assist, and we embrace the belief that every healthy and treatable animal, that's one that poses no obvious or suspected threat to the health or safety of humans or other companion animals, deserves placement back into our community. Some factors that can affect a shelter's operations. Um, first of all, we are what is called an open admission shelter, and that simply means that our taxpayer-funded shelter does not restrict intake, but accepts any animal in need, regardless of breed, age, health, or temperament. And that's opposed to some, sometimes you'll hear the phrase, um, limited admission shelters um, that may accept primarily surrendered animals from families, or they only accept stray or seized animals if they are contracted to perform those tasks. Um, building limitations can have an impact on, on our operations. Um, our shelter is a converted truck repair garage, which we currently lease. And while we've made many, many significant improvements to the facility by installing new animal enclosures in all of our housing areas and making the center bright, clean, and welcoming to our visitors, the building does have some deficiencies of note. Um, first of all, there is no running water in most of our animal housing areas, which can hinder adequate daily sanitation. There is no air conditioning on the second floor housing areas, no heat or cooling in the kitchen and laundry areas. Our HVAC system uses recirculated air rather than fresh air, which can negatively impact our disease control efforts. The kennel capacity is not adequate to meet our required housing needs without adversely affecting placement efforts for our animals. That means approximately 70% of our animal population does arrive with a required holding period. Most commonly, these animals are stray, lost, abandoned, confiscated for cruelty, or are required to be held for rabies observations. <coughs> While we do have designated space for this population of animals that do have their required holds, demand for these spaces can frequently outpace availability particularly during our higher intake months from May through October. 
When our designated space is full, we are then forced to house our required hold animals in our adoption kennels, which in turn reduces the time and opportunity for the pool of adoption floor animals awaiting new families. Due to our available space and operational constraints, we have maximized the potential in our facility. We will also show you that shelters that are able to give more time to each animal are generally provided more placement opportunity to each individual animal, resulting in better overall positive outcomes. Therefore, we will work with the other city departments to begin a capacity assessment um, of our current facility. We also have brought this evening um, an additional packet to give you that illustrates our historical trends and some comparative data with similar municipal shelters in the region. The comparative data from Chesapeake, Virginia Beach, and Richmond will clearly illustrate the impact of a new or expanded facility and what that has on the available care days that are afforded to each animal and the resulting positive impact on our live release rates. Care days are defined simply by the annual intake of animals divided by the number of kennel spaces you have available in your facility. You'll see in the packet that we're going to give you that Norfolk currently has a bank of 11 to 12 care days afforded to each animal on average. While our sister shelters in newer expanded facilities can typically offer each animal more than 20 days to procure placement. Some other resources that do affect our, our operations, um, the animal care load. Our daily population of animals is 130. The recommended staffing level for this number of animals is approximately 15 animal care positions. And we currently have 11.5 animal care positions to cover our seven day a week operation. The impact of not meeting the industry standards um, for staffing can result in higher animal workloads per caretaker, which can then threaten the quality and completeness of care for the animals, high turnover due to staff burnout or what we call in our field compassion fatigue, and longer wait times for the customers to receive service when they need staff attention. Our volunteer program, um, we are so fortunate to have a robust and dedicated core of volunteers who are so integral to completing our daily operations. Um, our resources for ongoing volunteer recruitment, orientation, training, performance feedback, and program analysis are currently limited to one staffing position. We've included a more in-depth analysis of uh, our volunteer program on pages 13 and 14 of the strategic plan document. The adoption program, um, we do believe that expanding adoption hours into additional weekday evenings would result in more opportunities for adoptions, especially for working families. And currently we have among the fewest number of public adoption hours among our peer agencies. Community outreach. While we attended more than 70 outreach events during the calendar year 2017, these activities remain primarily driven by volunteer availability and knowledge. The Animal Care Center staff are not routinely able to attend these events due to their priority of daily animal care and customer service workload. So our volunteer outreach is often resulting in non-targeted efforts whereby the volunteers share very general information about our adoption program fees, the shelter's website address, um, and, and those types of very, um, very basic um, information with our, our citizens. While our ongoing presence in the community is invaluable, having the Animal Care Center staff 
um, be able to participate in more of these types of events would directly address some of the unique animal concerns um, and needs of individual citizens or neighborhoods. In your supplemental packet, we have included the community outreach events that we did attend in 2017 in addition to the numerous ongoing opportunities our media partners afford us. The positive news, um, we have a group called the Friends of NACC or the Friends of Norfolk Animal Care Center. They are a 501c nonprofit fundraising group comprised of hardworking and very dedicated local residents who raise much needed donor funding to support many of our supplemental programs and operations. The Friends Board makes it possible for us to perform necessary medical tasks for animals in need. They financially subsidize our reduced fee adoption events and our foster care program. And they also programmatically target populations of at-risk animals, particularly our senior pets, to enhance their opportunities for adoption. We've included the most recent Friends of Norfolk Animal Care Center annual report in that data packet. And I know that you can all appreciate um, the extraordinary value that they bring to the city and to the Animal Care Center and ultimately to our animals. So we're very grateful for them. Um, lastly, regional cooperation. Um, while the growth and popularity of um, our adoption efforts have reduced the need to transfer a significant number of animals to other animal welfare agencies, we continue to actively partner with private and public organizations to facilitate placement of animals into new homes. Efforts are particularly made when the center's population reaches capacity, if the animal would be better served in a different setting than we can offer, if the animal has health or behavioral needs beyond our current resources, or if the animal is of a breed or a species that requires specialized housing and placement. You might see a goat or a chicken or something pop up from time to time with us, so we never know what's coming in. Contingent upon these transfers of animals, um, it's up to the receiving agency's space, resources, and willingness to accept an animal from us into our care. On limited occasions, we're also able to accept animals into our care from our partner agencies when our space and resources permit. This is part of our ongoing regional commitment to assist as many homeless pets as possible. In fact, just today we were able to reach out and help Chesapeake Animal Services with four dogs that they recently took in from a large-scale seizure. Our vision is to, I can't see that very well, um, to ensure the welfare of Norfolk's companion animals through our commitment to achieve positive outcomes for 100% of those animals that are healthy, treatable, will make good family pets, will be safe in the neighborhoods, and we have 100% commitment to find homes for each of those animals. Our strategic priorities are to deliver animal care that promotes physical and behavioral wellness, provides proactive community outreach and service, and we'd like to be able to also secure the necessary human and financial resources. The strategic plan that we've given you details the goals associated with each of these priorities and the resources required to achieve our vision and a five-year budgetary um, impact of implementing our recommended solutions, and those can be found on pages 9 through 15. Successful accomplishment of our vision, mission, and strategies remains contingent upon the adoption of recommended facility and staffing solutions. No, she's saying no. Okay. Um, finally, I'd like to invite um, each of you to come by the shelter for a tour. We can sit down and talk about any questions, concerns you have. Um, we're pretty proud of the work we've done there, and um, I hope that you will all stop by sometime.
Thank you for your time. I know several of you have taken advantage of that opportunity to tour, and I, I'd encourage the rest of you, if you can, before the end of August. Um, Mr. Spiegel. Um, so I, I, I don't, I wasn't able to get the presentations in advance. I don't know why they didn't pop up in my Dropbox. Apparently it's under memos, which I've never seen oh, before. Oh, okay. Maybe I missed it. Maybe figured it out. Oh, well. <laughs> None of us figured it out because they've never put it in the um, I would have. But, but also, right. when, when was it put in the Dropbox? Yesterday. Yeah. That's yeah. Like, so, Mr. S Mr. Manager, I'm, this was supposed to be an update. This ended up being a full presentation and a introduction of the strategic plan. And I think that's kind of unfair to the council. If we were expecting an update, and then we get a full presentation and a strategic plan that none of us expected or to get in the Dropbox yesterday, haven't had, had a chance to adjust it, to look yeah. over it, and then we're going to have another presentation in August. I don't see. So what the intent the was to give you the, to, to present give you the strategic plan in preparation for that conversation in August. So I, I apologize that you, that you had this much detail. Yeah, right, Mr. Smigel didn't respond. Yeah. You know, I, the audit that the um, auditor did wasn't, I think, what some of us would have expected. And I appreciate everything that's in the presentation. I know that everybody that works at NAC cares about animals, that, hands down. I, I know that that's important. I, I know there's some philosophical differences um, with some council members and maybe how NAC operates. I know out there there's philosophical differences from different competing groups. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it, we all care about animals. Um, what I would have liked to see is freedom from death, you know, as one of those bullets. And I, I think that's ultimately what the majority of this council has been trying to push for years is how do we get to that point to support them to get get there. We want to be like other shelters in the state in which not necessarily 100% no kill. We know that's going to be difficult, but that we're just trying to get to those benchmarks. And the sad reality is exactly what Barbara said is the facility is not going to help us get there. And for years, there's been a couple of us on council that have been arguing either in the budget to put money in there to do a bigger study or to look at when a school is turned back over, converting it much bigger area, or there's fields around it to give these animals an opportunity to have a bigger space. But we're just, it, it, it's like a hamster wheel. It's just, and I needed to use an animal analogy. It, it just, it, it just keeps on going and going, and nothing's changed. We gave benchmarks years ago to hit, and nothing happened from that. And I think some of that is also the philosophy of some of the staff, the city management staff. Um, and moving this forward. I don't think it was a priority in the previous administration, um, but I think it should be a priority. And I think this council has made it clear that we want to get there. Um, but we, we are continuously, we've been continuously ignored by city staff on this. Um, we have a new, Nikki Riddick is awesome. I think that if she had the opportunity to listen to us more about our philosophy as a council and where we should go, we represent the citizens of Norfolk and we hear from them that this is where they want to go. Um, and it's not moving, and it's not moving fast enough. And so in next year's budget, we have to figure out how we can start addressing it. I think Kenny hears it too. Um, we, we have to figure out how to get this in there and start making those numbers work. We have to figure out how to support them. If they only have 11.5 and they need 15, then put the four and a half in the budget, three and a half in the budget, to get, that was math, three and a half in the budget to give them. What's three and a half more people? I mean, we've got to, Doug, we've got to do this because I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of getting beat up over this. Um, I'm tired of people that at NAC thinking that we don't support them when we do. 
uh, we want to help them get there. So let's do it. Um, and you know, we can study and study and study, but it's not going to mean anything at the end of the day if we don't put the money to it. So let's make it happen. Ms. McClellan. Um, I was reviewing the strategic plan, trying to do a quick intake dive. Uh, so I think it's got a lot of good information. I really appreciate it. I think I'm challenged, like Mr. Spiegel, that we didn't see this sooner. We had an audit. I was seeing this. I thought this would come out. You know, we could have been talking about this during our budget negotiations. Now we're talking about making changes for fiscal year 2020. We're just in the beginning of fiscal year 19, and meanwhile, we've got animals who are going to be affected by this, and that's really challenging to me. Um, you know, I'm, I think on page seven, you know, the thing that strikes me is you look at Norfolk, Chesapeake, Richard Beach, and then Richmond, right? So we got Richmond, uh, they have, you know, we have a, a, a save rate of 66%, and they've got a save rate of 92%. Their housing capacity is, is, is more, so there's that problem. But I also think that we could be doing more with with staffing. And I, I really don't want to enter into the conversation of needing a bigger facility until we know that we have done the best we can with the staffing of the hours of the adoption, etc. So I, but anyway, I think we're in, we're going in the right direction. I'm glad we're having an August presentation. I agree with Tommy. I hear about this all the time. Norfolk is a, is a city that cares about its animals. Um, and so let's continue to focus on this. I think it should be at one of our talking points for our next budget if there's any but I don't want to wait until 2020 fiscal year either if there's some tweaks that we can make now I really don't want to wait any longer okay uh, just, mr. Thomas just want to point out so that the people at home aren't thinking that the NAC is not doing anything I, I did do a, a site visit to the NAC and what they're doing with the, the building they have and the volunteers and employees they have is absolutely phenomenal they're doing a fantastic job and if you look at statistics in the book that we were just given um, almost every single year since the statistics are given here since 2011, the save rate has gotten better and better and better. Um, so, I mean, they are making progress. I don't want anyone at home thinking that they're not or not doing better. They are. They're making progress almost every single year. And they're doing a phenomenal job if you go visit the, the actual location out there. Uh, the, the policy question is for everyone at this table to discuss and decide what we want to do. I don't think it should just be Tommy and Andrew saying that we need to do this. We need to have a discussion. And we need to know what it's going to cost to get where we want to go. Um, just hiring three more people may not make a difference in our save rate whatsoever. We've got to have someone who knows what they're talking about yes. to tell us that. Yep. And so we, we do need a lot more information before we can make these decisions. All right, thank you, Mayor. So the next presentation is going to be uh, Jim Reddick. It is hurricane season and give you a sense of what is uh, uh, predicted uh, for this season and just remind folks uh, what they need to be thinking about and what we need to think about as an organization. So that was my introduction. Uh, Mr. Mayor, members of council, Mr. Manager, thanks again for having me up here. Like the manager said, we are in hurricane season. Uh, as we approach August, that's peak season for us, as you uh, likely know. Um, the forecast for the season is, is more or less the same as it's always been. If you don't mind, Kim, go on to the next one. Um, and it's, it's really a talking point. Uh, there's no correlation as to where these storms would make landfall and at what intensity. We know that we are vulnerable to uh, and susceptible to getting hit by storms, and it simply just takes one to be a bad hurricane season. So uh, since the chief quoted a leader, I'll do the same. Hal Moore, who wrote, uh, we were soldiers and young, there's always one more thing we can do to increase our odds of success. And that's what we continuously do. We continue to improve our plans. We continue to build up our team, uh, and we continue to go out into the community to try to meet people where they are so they can be best prepared uh, for the next hazard as well. So, Kim, if you don't mind, um, 
you have the, the, the talking points, the read-ahead materials. Uh, again, summarized as we continue to improve all of our efforts, uh, we improve our command and coordination and information processes. Uh, and what message I would like to leave to those uh, who, are, who are watching is to be prepared. Have your kit, have your plan. Uh, two, know how you're going to be informed, what those official sources of information are, and how you can give us information, the boots on the ground information out in the community, uh, and be connected and engaged. Uh, we know, and it's been uh, documented several times, that those communities that are most resilient are those that are connected, uh, those neighbors who know each other. They know who's on their left and who's on their right, and they look out for each other. Uh, and that's the kind of uh, approach we need at the community level, regardless of the hazard, whether we're talking tropical storms or winter storms or a terrorist attack. We need a community that is engaged. Uh, they are not convergent volunteers, but they're already connected, affiliated, and they're part of that Team Norfolk concept. Uh, so with that, uh, I was told to be very brief. Are there any questions I can answer for you? Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Lauren Thomas. Um, uh, the flood walls downtown, the Mason Creek floodgates, is everything being tested? Yes, sir. Uh, so I understand there was an issue Saturday, so we're talking about that now. Uh, and also making sure that we have those triggers in place if a piece of equipment is not working, uh, making sure that we have a quick result on, on remedying that situation very well. Okay, Mr. Smeagle. The Know Your Zone stickers that were put on the garbage can, um, I was at a Civic League recently and they were complaining about they were coming off already um, or if they didn't get one, if there was not. So how did they go about requesting one or? They could either call my office or the call center. Okay. Yep. I don't know. I, I thought they were all put in the top of the garbage cans. Right. And somebody said some of them were put on the sides where the actual claws Get them. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I, I think they were all put on the top. You're right. But that was one of the complaints that came out. So I'll just send it back to the president of the Civic League and she can announce it at the her next meeting. Certainly. Yeah, we're welcome, to, we're welcome yeah. to replace them. Yeah. They're great. Oh, they're so mine was on top of mine for whatever that's yeah. worth. Yeah. Uh, Miss, I don't want to tell you, but you can't evacuate, though, because you'll be in the EOC with me. I'm not delegating up. I'm just saying. <laughs> I do have a family. <laughs> <laughs> In addition to this one, is there any, uh, in the event of a terrific storm, is there any piece of equipment that we could lose that would take a couple of days to get? Uh, Sir, excellent question. And so we, we have conversations with folks who are more inland who are willing to take some of our equipment and keep it in safe storage until the storm blows over and then bring it back in. So I think... Uh, in that regards, we're, we're good. We reevaluate that every year uh, and identifying so they can have a load plan on where they're going to store that, that, that equipment. So uh, we review that, and, and I think we're pretty good with where we are. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I'd like to talk about our shelters. Okay. What's the capacity of our shelters? Do we have a, um, and, and of those shelters, how many are not in a flood zone? So this may not be as brief, sir. Um, so, so we have... This is council's time. Exactly. So here's the challenge with our shelters. Uh, we have capacity and terrific partnerships with Norfolk Public Schools, uh, some of our recreation centers, um, but we could use more space. And that's where partnerships with uh, different sectors and levels of the community come into play. Uh, and primarily, I mean our faith community. Uh, if we're able to effectively reach out to our faith community and the houses of worship that are in a Cat 2 zone or higher, we should have the square footage. Uh, the challenge has been thus far uh, getting the, 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 uh, 
the partnerships in place to, to make that happen. Or if it's in a flood zone, having uh, them provide staff in another shelter. The other concept is if you're going to be sheltered, you may very well be asked to assist in that shelter. We can provide shelter management in all of our shelters and then some. Uh, the shelter operations, there's just-in-time training to make that available to whoever is able-bodied and, and willing and able in there. Um, they could provide some assistance as well. Um, so sheltering is something that we constantly look at. Uh, we certainly could do better and need to do better. Um, and again, as the, the, the evacuation zones have been reevaluated, we have a better idea of where those shelters need to be. And so similar to the evacuation zones, is there information, does it make sense in advance for folks to know? I know where my shelter is if there's an issue, or does it? Is it dynamic and it just depends on the situation at hand? It's dynamic, so uh, it, it's fair to provide details on the shelters that we have that could potentially open. Certainly, for those who have access and functional needs, to have realistic expectations of what could be provided, but it will be situation dependent. That that shelter may not be available that particular week of the season because the floors being waxed, or maybe they're doing repairs on the roof. So. We wouldn't make that call until we know that storm is heading our way. Uh, working with public schools, uh, that's when we would announce when the actual shelter list would be. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. Our last presentation is, is something that uh, Ms. McClellan had seen pieces of and, and uh, on the Community Hospitality Partnership in uh, Exxon. Thank you. Good evening. Mr. Mayor, Council Member, Mr. Smith. Um, we were tasked the couple few months to work on uh, uh, on developing a new program uh, geared toward the, all the restaurants with and without ABC license citywide. Uh, we really wanted to be, it's definitely not a task force, we wanted to be a partnership between uh, the restaurateurs, the residents, the city, and all stakeholders. Okay. So we have set basically two goals. The first one is we want to create an open forum where, uh, where we would meet with groups of restaurateurs uh, per neighborhood and uh, keep an open dialogue, uh, exchange ideas. Uh, they would know who to contact uh, at the city if uh, they need any assistance and offer all the resources that the city has to offer for small businesses. The second one is geared toward mostly the entertainment establishments and nightclubs. So ABC license passed midnight. Next, please. So the way it's organized, we have a very small uh, hospitality uh, committee, uh, planning, development, city attorney's office, and neighborhood development. And the, the team Norfolk members that uh, has also the other uh, stakeholders like uh, State Health, Commissioner of Revenue, and Virginia ABC. So the program has four components, the outreach, the concierge, the prevention, and the compliance uh, function. And we really didn't want to reinvent the wheel, but basically feeding into uh, existing uh, programs and initiatives and city processes, uh, like uh, Norfolk Works, business cafes, um, neighborhood uh, academy, and so forth. First one is the outreach. So this is, is uh, it's a huge task. As you, could tell, as you can see, uh, we have broken uh, down all the restaurants by wards. So 
we are in the process now of uh, creating or developing those groups within uh, those neighborhoods. And uh, we're thinking that we're going to meet quarterly, offer all the resources that the city has to offer, and be there from start to finish, basically. We certainly don't want this to be a, a complaint uh, forum. So if uh, any particular restaurant uh, or a business has uh, a particular issue, we will have a one-on-one -on -one, uh, one -on -one, uh, meeting. Second one is the concierge uh, uh, function. So every applicant that comes to the city and applies for uh, a conditional use permit, they have to have a pre-application meeting with the planning department. This time, development is going to be present. This is where we go through all the requirements uh, for, uh, to uh, hold a conditional use permit. And this is where development is going to offer all the services, you know, from literally from and welcome through all city processes, permitting until they receive their seal and start their business. Uh, the second one, this is geared mostly towards the entertainment establishments and nightclubs. So we're really, really emphasizing on the prevention side of it. So we are uh, in the process of uh, developing an operator training uh, module that is going to be offered basically where all Team Norfolk members, will, they'll each have like five, ten minutes and go through the training. And... Uh, we also added the, the online training as well for Mrs. McLennan request. The other one is the Community Hospitality Partner Course. We're going <coughs> to offer this course at the Neighborhood Academy that they offer every Saturday. Of course, it's going to be like quarterly or when we have like a group of 10 or 20 of them. Uh, this is basically going to be geared toward mostly like the community, the neighborhood, the residents that are uh, that have that live uh, adjacent to those establishments and everything, and just by being a good business, a good neighbor, and that sort of thing. Lastly, is the compliance. So we're going to use the Norfolk Care Call Center and uh, basically streamline those complaints. We'll hold meetings with the applicants about those violations and. Um, and I'm sure we will get to, uh, uh, to a solution and that uh, pleases everyone and makes it a win-win for everyone. We're also going to do a, a big uh, marketing and let them know that uh, we are starting this soon by printing invitation, it's going to be very hard getting all email addresses, but I guess once we start doing the outreach and having those small groups, it's going to be easier to exchange those contacts, online videos and so forth. And that's about it. come to Norfolk because we have great restaurants and we've got a great social life <coughs> and we need to do everything we can to cultivate that, make it easier for these folks to do business with the city of Norfolk when they have issues. So this idea is great. Thank you for putting it together. I applaud 
fact that it's not a silo, um, it's not just development or planning, and we're working in conjunction. So I just want to yes. say thank you. Thank, thank you as well. It's very important. I've been having a lot of conversations recently with people who want to do restaurants. What I'm curious is to find out how we compare cost-wise um, if you wanted to start up a restaurant in Norfolk compared to other localities, particularly with the recent um, changes in our um, tax increases and other things. Uh, one of the biggest concerns that I hear from those who want to start restaurants, they can't afford to do it. And there's just no, the bottom line is just so hard with it, including, um, you know, things, health department codes um, with hoods and things like that. I'd like to know, are we, do we, are we a little bit too much in some areas? Um, can we back off? Um, do we require a different, I don't know, I'm not a restaurant guy, but do we require an extra type of hood that another city wouldn't, I don't, I don't know. I just, I would like to know, get that comparison to see are we being overbearing in some places um, that is prohibiting those that want to start up some restaurants um, from doing it, um, making it harder. They may not know that, they may not be able to compare it to Virginia Beach, but we can look at our own numbers and then see if there's things that we can back off on or make it easier for them, you know, to start up. Right, we'll do some analysis for you. Great work. Thank you very much. All right, great presentation. Right, Andrea. I'm sorry. Um, Mr. Mayor, I, I'd like to suggest, and I don't know if my council members feel this way, but we haven't had council concerns in I don't know how long. And I think that the opportunity for us to talk about issues is something that's been missing. And I, if we could, you know, we started this at four. We have 30 minutes left. Maybe we need to readdress the, our, our schedules because I really feel like there are some things that I have questions about. I'm sure all of us do. And we talk individually, but this is the people's business, and they need to see us discussing this. And I've gotten some feedback that that's a problem. So maybe when we get back from recess, we can start considering that. I don't. I welcome input from others. I don't know if I'm, a, I'm the only one who thinks this. Mr. Riddick. Yeah, I think so. But I gave the manager my concerns in a document today. But I agree with you. We need to discuss it publicly. Okay. I'd like to see it come back. So what got us a little bit is um, we tried to make the first the first um, Tuesday meeting was intended to give you all that opportunity, and then we took it and did the board tours. So you're right. We have not had the opportunity to do that for a while. And one of those council's concerns are, how is our legislative agenda being drafted, and at what point do we have the opportunity to weigh in on that? Where it is being worked on right now. You know, you'll see. And we can bring Morgan in here and give you a little bit of an update. But you all, yeah, so, yeah, so I'll just jump in. So... Um, Morgan will probably visit, she's here, Morgan will visit with each, of, each one of us uh, about uh, legislative priorities. Uh, she will then um, bring uh, those priorities to a presentation with the manager first, and then of course we'll have an agenda uh, setting meeting. We will then invite all the uh, members of our delegation uh, to maybe uh, an event uh, to uh, share with them, of course, our legislative priorities, both be it state or federal priorities. But the time is now, uh, because the General Assembly will be, uh, the money committees will meet in August, and then the governor will announce uh, whatever adjustments to the budget. In December, I believe that there's 500 uh, surplus, $500,000 surplus. It's all going to be good. Uh, so the time is now and, and to, to start sharing those concerns with Morgan. So is that something that we could talk about in our August meeting, recognizing that the time 
sure. have an, an idea to provide, not only just a presentation, but actual dialogue of some things. I, I don't, I just, yeah. just, an, just an idea here. Tom, I just, we also probably should start looking at the calendar and scheduling uh, joint meetings with the school board uh, with the change um, of new members. Um, I think it'd be great to get us together sooner than later, not waiting till budget time to have conversations with them. And uh, particularly with the most recent announcements um, from their consultant about closing more schools um, and con uh, combining them, it'd be great to hear some of that because um, ultimately we have to pay for it. Um, I'd like to hear some more of that presentation, which is what we didn't get um, at that one meeting we had at the Campostella, um, STEM Campostella building that one time. I think that's what we were expecting, but it came out and was announced, so it would be great to hear the work that's being done now and the recommendations. I, I, I would echo that, Mr. Mayor. I think that would be a good presentation for council to hear. It's very comprehensive, thorough, and you'll see the opportunities for the city, frankly, as a result, as well as Y'all like know this, but the mayor, vice mayor, chair, vice chair, superintendent, and I meet once a month so we can put this on the agenda to schedule the, the next uh, joint meeting and what the agenda for that would be. And, and frankly, I'd recommend that Tracy Richter do the presentation of both superintendents so inclined because he's so articulate in describing the why behind it and his experience, frankly, nationwide speaking to it. So Tracy's very skilled and has done a good job speaking before. Sure, sure. I can invite him. Okay. Mr. Manager, anything else? We are good until 7 o'clock, sir. Okay. See you at 7.